as we approach uh, the end of our time in Galatians, which hasn't been a very long time at all, I feel uh, both foolish and wise for having decided to cover this book in nine sermons. Uh, Foolish because, who are we kidding? How do you do that? And wise because I think going through it at this pace has helped us maybe get the larger picture together. But as we look at it, this is next week will be the last week in this book that we have uh, before we move on to other things. But here we finally get to the point that a couple things have, are made clear that I've been trying to bring to the picture as we've been reading the earlier parts. Because it's hard to understand the earlier parts without knowing two things. The situation in Galatians and the situation with the false teaching, but also Paul's solution to that situation. And spending what has already been seven sermons without looking at some of what's here would be nearly impossible. So here today we get to two topics that we need to look at carefully. One is the circumcision of the flesh, which I have mentioned in preaching this earlier, but we've never gotten explicitly written down until this chapter. The second is the work of the Holy Spirit, which is implicit in everything Paul's been saying so far, but doesn't become clear, at least this clear, as it does here now. So as we look, we're going to see a contrast between the false teaching that is requiring the circumcision of the flesh and the true teaching, which is saying that instead of being led by the flesh, we should be led by the Spirit. And so, we begin here in verse 2. Paul makes clear that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Maybe here it's worth uh, saying a couple words just about circumcision, which is always what y'all want to happen uh, in a service, especially when the kids stay in the room. I remember when I was a child, my father would uh, often read his Bible in the evening I don't actually know if he read it in the morning as well, but I remember him reading it in the evening. And I only remember one time that he did this. He, occasionally he'd be reading in the evening and he'd call me over and he would teach me something that he's reading in the Bible, uh, which is, is, is a fantastic thing to do for your children. Uh, even though he didn't do that my entire childhood, he did that just in that short while. It was very influential to me. But I only remember one thing that he taught me. And it was one day, I guess he was reading in the Old Testament, I think. He called me over and he explained to me what circumcision was. And I was probably five, six, seven, eight, something like that. I did not understand what he was trying to teach. Because he was explaining, you know, it's the removal of the male foreskin. What I heard was that a lot more was removed. And I was terrified of even the idea of circumcision. Uh, with that being said, that's, that's actually a key issue in the churches in Galatia. You have a bunch of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who were not circumcised on the eighth day. They were not circumcised as children or even as adults. And this was a very important rite of passage for Jewish children, a very important rite of passage of the Old Covenant, of the Mosaic Covenant. And so, the expectation was from some that the Gentiles now trying to be brought into the the faith of the true God of Israel needed to go through this rite of passage. And not only that, but in going through that rite of passage, they were to then tie themselves and connect themselves to the Mosaic law, 
And so it was the expectation of some, these false teachers, that the Gentiles in the churches needed to get circumcised and practice and keep and observe the law. Now, there seems to have been political pressure here as well, it's worth noting. And, and we'll see that come up here in these, this passage. It seems that part of the reason they were wanting this to happen may have been selfish. It may not have been driven by the fact they thought this was just completely theologically right. That it's so clear when you read the scriptures, this is what you should believe. But there may have been an ulterior motive that in this culture, the Jewish people had certain exceptions. They didn't have to participate in the pagan feast. Uh, they didn't have to make sacrifices to the pagan gods. They could live in, in peace, generally speaking, with, you know, just occasional weird glances at them, you know, because they had these exceptions from the government. They didn't have to participate even in the emperor worship. Now, here's the rub. When the Christian church emerges, they live in that way similar to the Jewish people. They abstain from idolatry and worshiping idols. They abstain from food sacrificed to idols. They, they abstain from all these cultic practices that the Gentiles and the pagans were practicing. But they were also unloading themselves of the burden of keeping the Jewish law. So now they were not only not participating in the pagan culture, they were not participating in every way in the Jewish culture. And so there was possibly arising in some of these areas persecution of Christians because they were not participating in the, the pagan and the, the secular government's rituals, but they were also not participating in the Jewish religion, which is the whole reason the Jewish people were allowed an exception to all this. And so it may be that the false teachers wanting to, you know, get rid of some of this persecution of the Christian church, were coming in and saying, you need to be circumcised so that you identify with us. You, you need to keep some of the law, at least in practice, in order to be identified with us. Now, they may not have made this clear, but it seemed like this motivation may have been there. Now, with all that being said, the problem that Paul sees is if you let go of Christ in order to grab onto something else, you no longer have Christ. He says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. For the Christian, Christ is of great advantage to them. It is only through Christ and his work and the Spirit's application of that work that we can be redeemed, that we can be delivered from our sin, that we can have complete and perfect relationship with God. That is of great advantage to us. But if we accept circumcision, Paul remarks, he will be of no advantage. All the gain that you had in Christ will be lost. Now, why is that? He says, I testify, I witness again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. This is something we see throughout the New Testament in Paul's writings and in the book of James. To trust in the law is to cease to trust wholly in Christ. To trust in the law is, not, is a zero-sum game. You can't just have part of it. You have to take the whole thing. And the problem is if you are seeking to be justified by the law, if you are seeking to be made accounted righteous by the law, and to be a part of God's covenant family by the law, well, the law is going to condemn you because you're not going to keep it perfectly. And, and, and it's not just about whether you do all the right things. 
It's about the fact that the law's purpose was never to make you righteous, to even have you declared righteous. We always needed something greater than the law, and that has always been the promised Messiah, the Christ, who we now know in Jesus. And so, going to circumcision and going to the law causes us, in verse 4 he says, to be severed from Christ. Everyone who would seek to be justified by the law. He says, you have fallen away from grace. Now, you probably know, as well as I do, especially if you grew up in church, especially if you went through Bible drill or Awanas or something like that, maybe you know Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here we see they are falling short not only of His glory, but of His grace. God's grace, His free gift of His love, His free gift of His Son, His free gift of Himself for us. That's ultimately what Christians profess. That God has sent His Son and had Him dwell in human flesh. Why? so that we might be redeemed through him. That through his perfect life and his death and his resurrection, our sins may be paid for, the penalty of our sins taken by Jesus, so that we can have eternal life, a life with Jesus that never ends. And in the fullness of God, in the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell in Jesus the Son. So that truly the story of God's grace is the story of God's gift of himself to us. And this gives us great, great hope. He says, for the spirit, Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We are hoping for righteousness because we know we are not perfect now. We know we are only declared righteousness on account of Christ, but we know one day Christ will return and our righteousness will be more than a declaration. It will be a brute fact. That not on account of what we did in this life, but simply on account of what Christ did with his and in his death and with his resurrection, we are counted and we are made righteous. That is central to our hope. And and the sad fact Paul is teaching us is that the circumcision of the flesh is a hopeless endeavor. Because to embrace it is to, to turn from wholly trusting in Jesus. We see Jesus himself teach. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father meaning God, except through me. There is only one way. When I was in uh, student ministry, they used to have this song that, I don't know why, but they wanted to play it like every week. But they'd say, one way, Jesus, you're the only one that I would live for. One way. But that's true. There is only one way. And it's almost like this is a temptation we all have, I think, and that many people in our culture have, which is not to accept one way, but to hedge our bets a little bit. It's like going to a horse race and betting a little bit on everyone. You know you'll lose if you do that. 
okay? You might say you're the winner, but you're going to leave with less money than you came with. Okay, hedging your bets does not work. And so it is with Christ. We don't get to accept the wholeness of Christ through faith and then go out and accept a bunch of other things and trust a bunch of other things. You don't get to trust Jesus plus how nice of a person you were. You don't get to trust Jesus plus how often you attended church. You don't get to trust Jesus plus the fact that someone stuck you in some water at some time. Now, that's not to denigrate being good and a good person. That's not to denigrate church attendance. Hey, I would love you all to just continually improve in church attendance. If we need to bring back the pins, we'll bring back the pins, okay? Uh, I'd love to end the year with some people getting some perfect attendance pins. And I'm not here to denigrate baptism. I have an extremely high view of baptism. But we don't get to trust in Jesus and trust in anything else. We don't get to trust in Jesus plus Muhammad. We don't get to trust in Jesus plus our own meditation that leads us to, to nirvana. We don't get to trust in Jesus plus a politician who we think is really going to push an agenda that will really turn this country around. We don't get to trust in Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus anything else leads you to hell. It just does. Because Jesus demands utter allegiance. He is demanding your all. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He's not saying, follow me one day and go follow a different path the other. He's saying, follow me daily, take up your cross. This is a high demand. And if we take anything like circumcision of the flesh, it is a hopeless endeavor. As one theologian said of this passage, whoever wants to have a half Christ loses the whole. Whoever wants to have a half Christ loses the whole. If you want to have part of Christ, you want his salvation, but you don't want his spirit that changes your life, instead you would rather do it on your own merits, you're not accepting the whole Christ. You're taking a measly sum. And if anything, once you just take part of Christ, you cease to take the true Christ at all. We see that in Christ Jesus, in verse 6, Paul writes, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, that means neither being a Jewish person or an un-Jewish person, counts for anything but only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. Only faith in Christ. The, the faith that truly works through love is the faith that truly trusts in the God who himself is love. It is only through faith working in love that we can receive the fullness of Christ. The circumcision of the, your flesh counts for nothing. Your religious rites and practices count for nothing if you do not have the one true living God and the spirit of him dwelling in you. Circumcision of the flesh is not only a hopeless endeavor, but it removes the cross's purpose. Look in verse 7. He says, you were running well. 
I, I love that, that line. I, I don't know about you, but I, I knew a lot of people when I was a teenager who were, who were Christian, and they would say, how's your walk? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I think I'm walking fine. Do you see a problem with my walk? They'd say, how's your walk? And what they meant by that was, how's your walk with the Lord? How's your life with Jesus? That's a metaphor used in Scripture is your walk. The other extension of that metaphor is running. That, that your life is a race. Paul says in, in Acts 20:24 20, that he just wants to run the race, to finish well. Well, here Paul says, you were not only walking well, Galatians, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. What you are currently believing, the thing you are persuaded to believe, is not from him who calls you. The Spirit of God is not enlightening your mind to trust in circumcision of the flesh. It will not, he will not do that. That is not what's going to happen. So who hindered you? He says in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, using something, uh, teaching that Jesus himself used. Now, we were going through Galatians. We've moved on to other things. We were going through Galatians, Galatians with the college and career group. And I think it was this last week or the week before. No, two or three weeks ago now. Someone asked, what does that even mean? That's leaven, lump, what is going on here? So I think it's worth mentioning what this means in case we don't know. Because it, it's language that you probably all grew up hearing in church. Some of you know exactly what it is. Some of you have no clue. Some of you may have... Maybe our grandmother who, who bakes bread. Maybe you have a grandmother who bakes bread. And when she does this, she's usually, if you're from East Tennessee, not making flatbread, okay? Now, if you're making flatbread and you just want it to be dense and flat, then don't worry about leaven. Just take the dough or the lump of dough and just leave it. You know, put it in the oven and you're going to be fine. But if you want the dough to be big, you want the bread to be big and, and bubbly and, and, and wonderful, you're going to have to leaven it. You're going to have to put some kind of agent in there, yeast or some other kind of leaven, a sourdough, you can use that. And you've got to put that in there so it rises, so that it bubbles up and becomes what you want it to be. And, Paul, and, and, and when you do that, it actually, if you take a giant lump of dough, it only takes a little bit, doesn't it? Some of you know this. Some of you may have accidentally put in more leaven than you were supposed to or more yeast than you were supposed to and just completely ruined the dough. Uh, if you haven't, go test it out. It'll be a fun science experiment, okay? It's not going to go well. Uh, especially, can you imagine if you put, if instead of putting like the amount of salt you're supposed to put in a loaf of bread, you put leaven instead? Uh, one time, this is a side note, one time I was baking cookies, and I don't remember how, I, I think I did tablespoons instead of teaspoons on salt, and you can only imagine how poorly <laughs> that went. Uh, thankfully, I wasn't married at the time, so no one, just my roommates were mad at me, Okay. So a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What he's saying is just a little bit of false teaching ruins the whole thing, changes the, the form of that thing. A little bit of false teaching changes the church. So instead of being what God intends it to be, it is what Satan intends it to be. A little bit of the law and observing the law as a means to righteousness completely distorts how you were called righteous truly in the first place, which is through Jesus Christ and him alone, through faith in Christ. He says in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, we don't know what happened in the churches in Galatia. We think, possibly because we have this letter and it continued to be circulated, 
that Paul won the day, but we don't know. What we do know is throughout church history, Paul won the day. His arguments here, based in Scripture, his arguments inspired by the Holy Spirit, won the day. So that in our churches, you know what? You don't have to be circumcised as a Gentile in order to be a church member. You don't have to observe the law in order to be a church member. Uh, I don't know why you would boil a goat in its mother's milk, uh, which is a law that is listed three times in the Old Testament as something you're not supposed to do. Uh, But there's no clear reason you shouldn't do that and be denied church membership. I'm not encouraging that, by the way. I think that would be a very odd thing to do, and we'd have a whole other conversation. But it's just to say that your church membership is primarily because of the work of Jesus Christ. You are in his church because he has saved you and he has called you to be a part of his church. If you are a member of this church, we believe that the Holy Spirit has led you to this body for the time that you are supposed to spend here for his glory and his work. Now in verse 11, he says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? So clearly here's a political thing. They were wanting to say, they were both wanting to trash Paul's preaching, the false teachers were, and also say he's also still preaching circumcision. Again, this kind of leads me to think there's an ulterior motive going on here. They, they want to both tear down the gospel that Paul preached and say, well, Paul himself was preaching circumcision. And he just asked, if I was still preaching circumcision like I was when I was a, a fully uh, fledged Pharisee, why am I still being persecuted? Because if I was preaching circumcision, the offense of the cross would be gone. The purpose of the cross would be gone. The whole reason Jesus came was to, to, return, uh, to redeem us. In Galatians 4, 5, he says to redeem those who were under the law. Returning to the law after receiving the gospel misses the point. Returning to the flesh misses the point. In Romans 8, verses 3, 4, and 6, Paul writes... For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. When we are counted righteousness, because the gracious gift of God, when we are counted righteousness on account of the perfect work of Christ, what is so wrong with us that we would ever want to return to the law which was never intended to count us as righteous? That we would ever return to our own sinful flesh and its passions and its desires. Why would we do that? It just shows how far gone we can be. And how wonderful it is that God has drawn so near to us. That despite the, the, the extent of our sinful flesh and hearts and minds, God draws near in Christ. And says, come unto me. Now, I think the passage really turns in verses 13 through 15. Oh, I should mention the best part. 
of this passage before I turn to that. Uh, because uh, Paul says this, am I, am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And then he says this, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, I think Paul had in mind what I thought my father was teaching me about circumcision. Which is a terrifying thought. He says, if you're going to be cutting, you might as well not stop. That's how mad Paul is about that. He says, well, if you want to go around and, and do that surgery to everyone, well, you go a little bit farther with yourself. If you think that's going to get you righteousness, imagine what you'll have if you cut off all of that. Not to get into anything too uh, difficult for you all to hear, but y'all have listened to political debates recently. You're okay with this. This isn't a problem. But this is what Paul says. This is where we are reminded that the Spirit of God inspires men to write these words. That he inspires human beings to address these situations. So Paul does not mince words. Circumcision of the flesh is a hopeless endeavor that removes the cross's purpose of saving people apart from their own works and apart from the law. Now we get to where I think the passage turns. Because at this point, people might accuse Paul of teaching not an anti-law view, an antinomian view, to use a really technical term, but basically lawlessness. That Paul says, oh, you're, you're saved by the grace of God, now you can live however you want, and God will forgive it. Paul is not teaching that. And to say that Paul says the law was a temporary, good but temporary thing is not to say that Paul thinks that Christians can go on and be immoral. That's a real danger in reading Paul's letter to the Galatians in particular, is to think that the Christian life is a life of accepting all the immorality and just baptizing it in Christ. But that is not what Paul thinks. Look at this. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is Paul saying? He's saying, you were called to freedom. For freedom Christ has set us free. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, your freedom is not just freedom from sin or from the law. It's those things. But it's freedom to Christ. Freedom to love as Christ loves. Your freedom doesn't just remove all your restraints. It gives you purpose and direction. And that purpose and direction is in Christ. For freedom Christ has set you free. But what is that freedom? It is not an opportunity for the flesh. Your freedom in Christ is not an opportunity for your promiscuity. It's not an opportunity for your filthy words and rude words. Freedom in Christ is not an opportunity to have a license to sin and get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Christianity is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's a relationship with Jesus that, yes... If you're going to have a relationship with Jesus, you're not going to go to hell. But if you have a relationship with Jesus, you're going to get much more than freedom from hell. 
you're going to get the best relationship you could ever bargain for. You're going to get the most loving father you could ever imagine, even more. You're going to get the most loving son, most sacrificial God that you could, you could possibly want. If you talk to other people from other religious groups, some of them just absolutely find the idea of God coming in, the pers- in a human person crazy. And they think it's even crazier that then he would die on a cross. Not because they can't imagine that happening, because they're secular, but because they're religious. Because they're religious, they can't imagine a holy God taking on a sinful body. Now, to be clear, Jesus' body did not have sin, but it was a human body nonetheless. They, they can't imagine him going to a cross and dying. God dying? That makes no sense. But here we have the picture of how we are to see the world and how we are to live. For freedom, Christ has set us free, not as an opportunity for your sinful flesh but so that you can be freed from your sinful flesh, so you can be freed from the slavery that you, are, you have been feeling your entire life. And, and I know that some of you are probably thinking what sometimes I think on a Sunday morning, which is, I love our church, and I know the members in our church, and I don't actively think any of them have been living in, in gross, unrepentant sin, that any of them have been falsely assured of their salvation, but at the same time, I, I, I know and pray two things. One, I never know who's going to be here on Sunday. And there may very well be, by the work of God, someone in our midst who has never understood that they are freed in Christ. That God has loved them so much to remove the burden of their sinful life. To remove the burden of the terrible things they think that they don't want to think and the things they say they don't want to say and the things they do that they don't want to do. Or even to reveal to them that the things that they are doing, saying, or thinking are things they shouldn't want to do, say, or think. And that therefore they need a savior. And not only that, but it is entirely possible, and in many churches it is even likely, that there could be someone who is a member, has shown up consistently for decades, has been dunked in the tank, has, has experienced amazing things in the church, but yet, when they look at their own life, they say, I don't really have a real relationship with God, and I still feel guilt over my sin that I can't comprehend, and I still sin habitually, and I just can't make sense of it. And I know the preacher says I'm supposed to trust in Christ and be assured of my salvation, but it's really hard for me to do that the way my life is right now. There can be people like that in every church in this country. And the sad fact of it is, is the fact that they attend church, the fact that they can say, I'm a member of this church, the fact that they have been baptized at some point in their life in a church or by a church or by someone who said they were a Christian, means that they feel really comfortable on their way to hell. And so I I preach this knowing that some people may have been believing in a gospel that said, I am free to sin, and God will show abundant grace to me. But that has never been the gospel preached by Jesus Christ nor his disciples. To, To tell you the truth in the same way I think the words of God that we read in Scripture are inspired, I think the words of that are are brought about from Satan. 
that you are free to continue to sin and sin and sin and sin and live your life however you want with no restraint because you prayed a prayer at a camp or at a vacation Bible school. And that's not to say that those things don't, God doesn't use those things to transform our lives. Many of you can think, I remember when I prayed a prayer at summer camp, or I remember when I prayed a prayer at vacation Bible school. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying, though, that one of the things that we have to keep in mind is being consciously aware that if we look at ourselves and say, I have no growing relationship with Christ, we need to ask ourselves, is that because I don't know Christ, or more importantly, that he does not know me? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Freedom in the Spirit of God should serve the purpose of love, not the purpose of sin. And that's what Paul says here. Instead, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, we can go back to the Old Testament law. Read it and learn from it. Read what holiness looks like. Read what it looks like to live a good life. But it can be summed up with that word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandments were, he, he made them pretty clear. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But then he, wanted, he made sure to add, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For we love not only God, but we love every person made in his image. That is why we believe in life from the mode of conception to natural death. That is why we believe in life. That is why we believe that every life has value. That's why we believe that every life needs to hear, every human life needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might turn to him, not to have freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but they, they may have true freedom in Christ as an opportunity to love as he has loved them. Now, as Paul turns, in verse 16, he says, But I say, this is Paul giving how he thinks ethics, morality, should go in the kingdom of God. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, meaning our sinful natures, are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The sad reality is, even for a Christian who has been truly and, 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 and honestly saved, genuinely saved, authentically saved, we still live in this in-between. The present evil age is over, but the age to come has not fully arrived. And we live in that tension in which we are still sinful flesh, but we are indwelled by the Spirit. Our, our, our souls have not been fully redeemed. Our bodies have not been fully redeemed. Those things will not happen until Christ comes, raises the dead, glorifies the righteous, and casts out the wicked. Until that day comes, we live in a tension where we sometimes do things we don't want to do, we sometimes say things we don't want to say, and we sometimes think things we don't want to think. This is one reason why it's so important that we listen to James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another. We think of 1 John where he says, If anyone says he, does not, uh, he has not sinned, he is a liar and deceives himself. We recognize that even Christians sin. In fact, it's the world who tells us that we shouldn't. And we say, no, 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 the whole point is that we sin. The whole point is we need Jesus. We're here not because we're the, the good people club. We're here because we're the good news club. That Christ has died for our sin. 
and he has died for yours as well. In that tension, though, we find that the desires of the flesh are not the same as the desires of the Spirit. Our sinful desires are not the same as the sanctified desires of God. And he says this, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now he says this, now the, in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. He starts with these three categories of, of sexual immorality and adultery and those things. He says in verse 20, idolatry, closely connected to adultery, but instead of a human to a human, it's human to God. Sorcery, now you probably don't often think about the sin of sorcery these days. But here, nonetheless, it is. I, I'll, I'll tell you this real quick on sorcery. I think we've got time for this. It won't take long. It may be that the command against sorcery is given because sorcery is real, and it's demonic, and it's evil. It may also be that if you're going to trust in sorcery, whether it's real or demonic or not, you are trusting in something other than Christ, and so it's still sin. I'm not going to make that decision for you this morning. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger rivalries, dissensions, divisions. This is part of the reason that, that those things have no place in a church. They have absolutely no place in a church. Let me say that again. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, none of those have any place in the church of Jesus Christ. They do not. Absolutely not. No place. This isn't a, well, in these certain situations. No. No place. Because, as verse 15 said, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You know the quickest way to get rid of a church so that there is no light in the community, so that there is no salt in the community, to use the metaphors of Jesus? Uh, show up one day, find the two bullheaded people in the church, and, and throw something out there and walk away. The quickest way to wreck a church is to make them start consuming one another. That is a work of Satan. That is not a work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, other things. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So it's not just these things, it's things like these. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are living a life defined by your sin, filled with your sin in these ways, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying, he's not nuancing this claim. He's saying if these things, if you are let, if you are uh, led by these works of the flesh, if your life is led by them, you do not inherit the kingdom of God. People, do, people hate when you say that. People absolutely hate when you say things like that. But nonetheless, there it is, right there in the Bible. Inspired by loving, kind Jesus. Little itty-bitty baby in a, in a manger, Jesus. But also coming in, with a, in the clouds of heaven, Robes covered in blood, Jesus. If you don't know about him, read Revelation. He says, instead, but, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I wish we had uh, six more weeks to go through each one of these. 
He says the fruit of the Spirit. What does he mean by that? In the same way that our sin is evidence of our life, so the fruit of the Spirit is evidence of our new life. And here he gives some of the evidence. Now, I want to be clear. We usually say the fruits of the Spirit. Paul doesn't say that. He says fruit of the Spirit. As if you have one Spirit who produces fruit within you. These, these might be maybe appropriate to say that love is a piece of the fruit of the Spirit. Or joy is a piece of the... And I say that because of this. You can't go, well, the Spirit has blessed me with love, but I'm not so good at kindness. Yeah, baloney. You don't get one without the other, okay? Now, that doesn't mean... And just like this, I think the metaphor of fruit is so helpful. Here's why. Do you know what you have to do with fruit? You have to cultivate it. In the same way, the Spirit of God is bringing this fruit into our life, but we have to cultivate it. At my, my parents' house in the front yard, they have several apple trees. Um, when we first got them, my dad kind of tended them. Over time, he's kind of ignored them. He didn't really plant them because they wanted a ton of apples. Someone gave him these trees, and he said, more trees, okay. He likes trees, so he planted the trees. And every year, except for this last year, they'd get sometimes a fruit about that big. And they would be disgusting. You wouldn't want to eat these apples. And that was when you could actually get one that didn't already have bugs eating on it and everything like that. If my father wanted to, which he doesn't <laughs> care that much for it, if my father wanted to grow real fruit that you would want to eat, that you could be sustained by, he would have to cultivate it. He'd have to put in a little work. You know what? When the Spirit of God dwells in you, you have the fullness of God uh, uniting you to himself. But you know what? You don't have a perfect life because God works sometimes slowly. If you've ever heard the phrase God speed, God speed is actually pretty slow sometimes. You know, to him, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day. God's speed is not our speed. We, we want to microwave our faith. Put in, put in the ingredients, put on 30 seconds, and at the end of it, have a nice warm burrito of a life, okay? That is not how God often works. Oftentimes, God is a slow cooker. Now, I haven't seen people whose lives changed like a microwave moment. It's like a light switch went off, and they were just a different person. But other times, I've seen people that you put in time, and you put in time, and you put in time, and you put in time. You open the lid, and you put in some more stuff, and it just takes so long. But yet, that's exactly what the Spirit of God wants to do with them. And it's a good reminder for all of us that in the church and in life, we ought not to try to do everything at our, on our own timing. We ought to trust the Lord's timing. I, again, I wish I had time to go through all these, but you see the picture of the fruit of the Spirit is entirely opposed to the picture of the works of the flesh. It's just entirely opposed. The one who practices sexual immorality does not have love or goodness or faithfulness. The one who practices idolatry does not have true love. They don't have the true God who is love. They don't have joy. The one who practices drunkenness does not have self-control. You can see that these things are opposed to one another. And, and in this in-between life, if you are in Christ, here is my encouragement. Cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Take these and make them your prayer. And take that other list and make them the prayer that you pray against in your life. Unless you think the fact that you have been a faithful spouse for 40 years means that you aren't going to fall into some of these vices, you're fooling yourself. God loves to tear down the people who seem the strongest. Sorry, Satan loves to tear down people that are the strongest. Let's be very clear here for a moment. I'm going to have to add a whole minute to the sermon just to explain. I did not, okay, you got it. In verse 24, and those 
who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When you died to your sin, so did the passions and desires that go with it. And our life is a continual putting to death the sin in our life that instead our life might be fulfilled with the fruit of the Spirit, may be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let's actually live by it. Let's actually live like we are led by the Spirit. See, the circumcision of the flesh in verses 16 through 21 represents trusting sinful flesh. If you trust the circumcision, you're trusting sinful flesh. In that same way, we all sometimes trust our sinful flesh, but instead we are called as Christians to live and be led by the Spirit of God. He ends in verse 26, this section. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He wants to make clear that these words are not just for the individual Christian. They're not just for the Christian when they go outside these walls. They're for the Christian in the church. They are to change how we live together. Christianity uh, has always been a team sport. It's never been a, the solo activity. Yes, Christian faith is personal, but it's never private. It's never been something that we do apart from anyone else. When we are called to be in God's family, to have God as our Father, we are called to a people. We are called to have brothers and sisters. And guess what? I know you, if you have siblings, you did not choose which parents to have. You did not choose what siblings to have. But the good news is, is that if you are born again by Christ and His Spirit, you're going to have a father better than any you could have hoped for. And you're going to have a better family than any you could have chosen. And so let us be led, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit of God. Let's pray.